Please remain standing. And I'm going to make one change. Decided for our Old Testament reading to read a uh, passage that we did not read at Lessons and Carols last night, uh, which will be Malachi chapter 4. This is significant because it's the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And if you think about what that means, this is God's last word to Israel before the coming of Jesus. So let's read Malachi 4, and then we'll turn over to John chapter 3. Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you... Who fear my name. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen. A sober ending to the word of the Old Covenant. Let's listen to the word of the one who brought to us the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. As it comes to us in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most uh, theologically rich carols, I think, and one of my favorites, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love the way that particular carol draws together, uh, just from beginning to end, the whole thing. Uh, so many biblical themes, so many word pictures for describing the Lord Jesus, for describing his mission, uh, who he is, what he came to do. 
Today I want to focus on that one line where it describes Jesus as the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. That can be something confusing because sometimes we're talking about him as the Son, S-O-M, S-O-N of God. But this is that phrase from Malachi 4, verse 2 that we read a little bit ago, the Son of Righteousness. And it says, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Light and life, of course, are um, major themes that permeate the whole Gospel of John in particular. It begins uh, way back in chapter 1 in that famous prologue, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, it says, and the darkness has not overcome it. It says later in that chapter, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, it's important for us to recognize that uh, prologue uh, to the Gospel of John in chapter 1 does not stand alone all by itself. So often we consider just the prologue, just chapter 1. But, of course, that prologue, it's an introduction that sets the stage for everything else in the book the whole way that John is going to present to us the life and work of Jesus. Well, similarly, John 3 is another passage that often is read all by itself. Um, and, but what we have to see is that it's, it's an integral part of that whole gospel also. And so what we ought to do is we ought to read John chapter 3 in light of John chapter 1. And so I'd like us to try to connect in our minds this morning what John says about the coming of Jesus in the prologue. In the beginning was the word and so on, and the word became flesh, light and life, the life was the light of men, to connect that with what this famous passage teaches us about the coming of Jesus, about why Jesus came and what he came to do. Okay. Later in John 8, um, Jesus is going to use the same imagery again when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. So that theme is the one we're going to uh, try to trace here in John 3, uh, using three points this morning. First is going to be the coming of the light, it's verses 16 and 17. The second one is going to be avoiding the light, avoiding the light, verses 18 to 20. And then third will be coming to the light, verse 21. All right, so first, the coming of the light. So if you want to know the why, of the birth of Jesus. This is a great place to go for the answer. For God so loved the world. Now, the English translation is a little bit ambiguous there. Um, It can sound like it's saying, and many people hear this as saying, God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus. Um, That's actually not what it says. Uh, The original language is, is quite clear on this, that it's saying... Thus, God loved the world. Or uh, one translation puts it like this. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. This is how God loved the world. Um, In 1 John, John's letter, later in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 18, remember how John says, little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so when when we follow that instruction... In our lives, we're simply imitating the Lord himself, um, who did not merely profess his love 
for his creation. Oh, I love you so much, and then not do anything about it. We have that problem all the time, right? Where we love with our words, but not with our actions. What God does is he showed that love in action. Thus, God loved the world. In this way, God loved the world. That he gave his only son. That's the love of God. In this season of gift giving, um, we think a lot about the importance of generosity, I think. At least, hopefully, we we reflect on it a little bit and not just kind of go through the patterns every year. Um, But something we also come up against, and I think about this as a parent, I think about this as someone with with friends and family and, and a budget. We come up against the limits of our generosity, right? There are certain gifts that we would love to give, but that's just out of reach. At least we can't give that to everybody. Because unlike the Lord's, our resources are limited, but the Lord's resources are not. See, there, there are also other things that maybe we have that we could give, but we would never, ever give them away. It doesn't matter how much we love somebody. We would never give them away because those things are, are too precious to us. Like our children. See, however extravagant or however frugal you or I may tend to be in our gift giving, we have never given any gift to anybody approaching the magnitude, the generosity, the lavish extravagance of God's gift to his creation in sending his only son to enter into it, to take our humanity upon himself and to be forevermore God with us, bearing our flesh and blood for the everlasting future. That is the gift of God. And he did this. Why? John goes on. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Old Testament um, looks forward to the coming of the Lord, sometimes called the day of the Lord, um, as a day of both judgment and salvation. So when God comes from the Old Testament point of view, um, the Old Testament believers knew when God comes, he is going to save his people and he is going to judge his enemies. Much as he saved Israel and judged Pharaoh at the same time, through the very same Red Sea waters. Israel passed through, Pharaoh's chariots were destroyed. What we find as that plan of God unfolds in the New Testament is that that coming of God that the Old Testament looked forward to, God planned all along to carry out in two stages. That's what Jesus is describing here and what he says next. So that the two comings of Christ, first coming and the second coming, are, are integrally related, but they don't happen at the same time, right? Um, Christ came first, he says here, to carry out the work of salvation, of living his perfect life, of dying his sacrificial death on the cross, of rising from the dead. And he did that to open a way of salvation for those who would trust in him. And that way of salvation is, is open to all during that time between the first and second comings of Christ. Now, when he comes again, as he's going to go on to say, that is when he will come as the judge. 
that is when all of his remaining enemies will at that time be destroyed. And that window of opportunity will be closed. That final sword of judgment that comes forth from his mouth in the book of Revelation will fall. But in the meantime, what is Christ doing now? What is Christ doing in the present day? Well, what he's doing is he is applying that work of salvation that he did on earth in the past to his people in the present by the very present power of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is doing now is he is gathering together a kingdom. He's gathering together a church, not only from throughout the world, but from throughout time as well. That's what verse 17 is getting at when it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And how's the world going to be saved? Well, it's by men and women and boys and girls turning in faith. Turning in faith to Jesus Christ and believing in him, verse 16 says. Trusting in that perfect work that he has done, not what we have done, but what he has done for us from his cradle to his cross. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You may have heard the great Reformation kind of slogan. Um, It was the motto of the city of Geneva, which is the city where John Calvin spent most of his ministry. It goes, post tenebras lux. And that means, in Latin, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. At that time in church history, that phrase stood in people's imaginations for everything that the Lord had done through the Protestant Reformation churches, restoring the true doctrine of salvation by grace alone and, and the, the purifying of the worship and the life and the ministry of the church. See, that phrase was so fitting to describe what the Lord did in that period of church history because in the bigger picture of history, that's the kind of God that the Lord is. He is the God who brings light out of darkness. Post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. That is the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God loved the world like this that he gave. His only son. God gave his son to a world that was laboring in spiritual darkness. Why? So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. He sent him so that the world might be saved through him. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness at the very beginning, has shown in our hearts, Paul says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Now, that's not all that Jesus has to say to Nicodemus in this passage. Some people just, times people will stop after verse 17. But there's more to be said here. Think about this. Let's go back to the story of Jesus' birth. The birth of Jesus provoked um, two very, very different kinds of reactions in the people that heard it, heard of it, right? So there were the shepherds um, who believed the message of the angel who went with haste to find the baby Jesus. There were the wise men who traveled 
from a great distance to worship him with uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh, bowing before him. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, you have the response of a person like Herod, right? Herod had the same information the wise men did. Someone has been born king of the Jews. Um, But Herod did not respond with worship. Herod's response was characterized by, first of all, fear and hatred and envy and, frankly, revulsion at the coming of Jesus. Here in John 3, Jesus is giving us, we could say, a a, a theological framework for thinking about those events surrounding his birth. Uh, But not just his birth, because this uh, is an ongoing thing. Every person who encounters Jesus in the message of the gospel is faced with the same two choices, to respond in worship or in avoidance and hostility. That's our second point this morning, avoiding the light, avoiding the light. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Jesus says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. See, when when people quote just John 3.16 all by itself, well, sometimes they'll, they'll say, well, God so loved the world. See, God just loves everybody, period, full stop. That's the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story. It's not doing justice to what Jesus means in this passage. God loved the world, that is, he loved his creation. He loved the world that he had made, and he showed that love by sending Jesus into it. You see, not every person in the world responds to Jesus in the same way. The message of good news for those who believe in Jesus is at the very same time a message of very bad news. It's a message of condemnation for those who refuse to believe, who refuse to submit to him as the Savior, as the King. And this is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. There are many uh, creatures that are drawn at night to sources of light. Think about a moth uh, fluttering around your front porch um, with the light on, in the summertime at least. Probably won't be any moths out tonight. Uh, For that matter, it works with little kids too, I've found. If I want Benjamin to go that way down the hall, sometimes I can just turn off the lights on this side of the hallway and he'll go the way I want him to go, Um, which is pretty great. This isn't working as well recently, though. He's... Anyway, um, there are other creatures that are not like that, though. Uh, Some creatures naturally avoid the light. Seek out the dark places, away from the sun, away from the warmth and the the clear light of day. Think of the creatures you find under rocks, under layers of decaying matter, those creeping things that burrow and tunnel their way deeper and deeper to places where the revealing rays of sunlight cannot reach. I've just described two kinds of creatures. Jesus is describing two kinds of people. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. See, we sinners, we sinners naturally are, are like those, those worms, snakes, 
beetles. That when they sense the light shining on them, they, they slither away. want to hide themselves from that searching, piercing brightness. Jesus' glory. Jesus' truth. For everyone, Jesus says, who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So the lesson here is that the coming of Jesus, think about this today, the coming of Jesus reveals what you love and what you hate. The coming of Jesus reveals what you love and what you hate. Jesus is describing people who love the darkness and hate the light. Go through their daily lives with practically no thought of God. And they like it that way. They're happy with that. They want his presence and his truth intruding into their thoughts, forcing them to think, but, but what would Jesus say? What has Christ said? How does the Lord see what I'm doing, what I'm thinking? How would he evaluate it? Um, how does the Lord... Uh, here, and they want to block all that out, and they want to say with the poet, no, I, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Don't give me that searching eye of Jesus that, that sees my sin and selfishness and that sees the ways that I speak and think and act for my own benefit, my own objectives, and my own desires, my own convenience, my own comfort instead of for his glory, his kingdom, his law, his righteousness. Don't give me that piercing radiance of his word that shows how far short I fall of his law. How far short I fall of loving my neighbor as myself, much less of loving him with even a small fraction of all my heart. Someone recently brought to my attention a little proverb from Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac in 1743, where he says, How many observe Christ's birthday? How few his precepts. Oh, it is easier to keep holidays than commandments. Now, Benjamin Franklin was not even a Christian. Uh, he was a confirmed skeptic. But sometimes um, it's skeptics who are uh, sometimes the best at pointing out the hypocrisy of Christians, of those who love the, the trappings of Christianity but haven't embraced the substance of the thing, who haven't actually submitted their lives to the truth of Jesus, to actually living in the light. Many people love Christmas, who hate the true light of Christ. Uh, people who live their lives avoiding that light and who even this time of year, perhaps especially this time of year, try to drown it out, try to shield themselves from it by wrapping themselves even in the very trappings of the celebration of his birth. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. I wonder if you've ever noticed how when you have some kind of unconfessed or unresolved 
sin in your life, some secret sin, some uh, angry conflict with some other person, uh, some choice that you knew was wrong, but you did it anyway. I wonder if you've ever felt the way that it can really mute, it can, it can strip away the joy of worshiping God. It can strip away your desire to pray, your affection for Christ, the, the, the warmth of your communion and fellowship with God. Why is that? Well, the reason is that sin drives us away from the light. When we are holding on to our sin and loving it, then our instinct is, is to shield it, to protect it, to wrap it up and shield it from the light of Jesus, lest our works should be exposed. Repentance. Repentance is disposed the opposite way. Uh, you remember when David repented of his greatest sin, how he prayed in Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I know my transgressions, he said, my sin is ever before me. See, see, David was coming to the light. And that's our third point this morning. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, verse 21. Sin loves darkness, but true living faith in Jesus loves the light of his presence, the light of his word, welcomes his searching gaze, even when it shows up our sin. It will do that, by the way. It will reveal just how much in need we are of forgiveness and grace, yes. But see, those who have lear- who learn to love the light have learned to see that as a good thing. And that's a good thing. If a couple of our kids have a have a messy room, which happens sometimes, um, we could just keep the lights off. That would be one way of dealing with the problem, right? We could just keep it dark. But I will tell you uh, from experience that even if the lights are off and you can't see, you can still trip over it. It's still there. The problem doesn't go away. See, it's when we switch on the lights that that room can be cleaned. It can be straightened up. So that's what the light of Jesus does. It, it reveals just how cluttered and filthy our, our hearts and our lives are apart from him. Shine the light of Christ on my heart. Shine the light of Christ on your heart, of the heart of any sinner. And, and you could say what parents will tell their kids. What a wreck. Looks like a tornado's been through here. It's the way our hearts are apart from Jesus. But you see, that's what Jesus shows us, but it's not where Jesus leaves us. And he also doesn't say, as sometimes I ungraciously do to my kids, just clean this up yourselves. He gets down there with us. And he's the one who cleanses that filth, that clutter away. Remember, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when we come to the light of Jesus, we find that while it is a revealing light, it is not a condemning light. Not if we come to him in faith. Not if we come to him with open hands. We step into that light and we say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me yours. I want it to be clearly seen that my works have been carried out in God. I want to live my life in the light. 
Let's go back to that carol. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. This day and every day that will follow, you and I are going to be faced with this choice. Are we going to come to the light, or are we going to avoid the light? And that is not just a question that's facing those who have never come to Christ before in faith. Um, It's a question even for Christians. Because day by day, we are faced with little opportunities to live our lives a little more darkly or a little more lightward. To turn a little bit more towards those dim recesses of sin and selfishness. Or to open our hearts a little wider. To live a little more transparently. To seek out day by day grace and truth of Jesus and his word. To welcome his all-seeing gaze on our life. That gaze that sees the very worst of our sin and yet does not condemn us for it. Why? Because we're trusting in him. Because because mild he laid his glory by and was born that we no more may die. Because he was born to raise the sons of earth. He was born to give us second birth. And because he came, because he lived, because he was condemned and died in our place, because he rose from the dead, That is why whoever believes in Him is not condemned, and that is good news for sinners. That is a message for us to relish and celebrate today and every day. That God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I give you thanks for this great gift. I give you thanks for this good news. Lord, we ask that our hearts would be filled with it today and in the days to come and in the new year. We ask that you would search us and try us, lead us in the everlasting way, and help us, Lord, to be people who walk in the light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.